that's what I love about dance music is the grown and sexy element to it. I love being playful, cheeky, sassy. Mm -hmm. I love tracks that are super bouncy, but I also love tracks that are like super deep. It's trying to find the balance between like the deepness of emotion and then the kind of more like front end sassy yeah. outward expressing of like a wink. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Of flirtation. Hey, welcome to Personal Project. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. I love a pod convo. I feel like I don't get to do enough. Does that make sense? Where I'm like, no, come on, chat with me. Okay, amazing. I, I, I also am really chatty. So some people I feel like dread it, but I'm glad that it's not a chore for you. So no, no, I love Labants. Gorgeous. It's all about the banter. A hundred percent. And so to start out, I would love to know. Looking back when you were a youngin, was there someone either in your life or in the media that you witnessed and you were like, I want this person's life. Yeah, it changed throughout the years, I want to say. But for sure, like super young kid, I was obviously obsessed with the Spice Girls because I guess that's <laughs> very much my generation. And it just looked so fun to be in a girl band, to to just hang out. To What it seemed like was like, oh my God, five best friends hang out with each other all the time. And they get to tour together and they like dress each other up and they all have their own personality. So that was a big thing. Like girl groups and boy bands were a big thing in my child, like little childhood. Mm -hmm. But the one that really resonated with me personally was Mariah Carey. I think because I'm mixed race, but you can't really tell. I think, I guess maybe you could tell more when I was younger. Mm. Like I, I was definitely ethnically ambiguous, like physically. Mm -hmm. And where I grew up, there just wasn't, it just, it, you just felt alienated. So it was a very low, it was a bit like, it was a bit of a lonely experience, not in a negative way, just you don't have blueprints. Or like other people around you to show you like, this is how your life is. Yeah. So seeing her, I remember reading, I guess, the French equivalent to like, you know, a teen magazine or like a pop star magazine at the time. It was called Star Club. And it was like one of her first interviews or whatever. And she was explaining how like she came from like a mixed race background, that it wasn't always easy having to navigate both worlds, like all those things. And. I just remember being like, oh, my God, I feel I just felt for her, mm. I guess, in a way that I didn't. I obviously loved her music. I wanted her cut off denim shorts <laughs> from the One Sweet Day video. I wanted mm. her perfect white T-shirt. I wanted a summer romance like from the Always Be My Baby video. I just want I like I just think Mariah Carey, even to this day, she's just like the number one diva and to me. It, it was an important symbol, I want to say, yeah. to latch on to from pop culture. Yeah. And then later on, I was a bit more of an angry preteen yeah. teenager. So then everything that I loved about Mariah Carey, I still love, but <laughs> it wasn't exactly like how I wanted to assert myself, I think, in the world. Sure. And I think Gwen Stefani and No Doubt, that when that came out, when they came out with Trajan Kinnam in 97, like that was it for me. Like my 11-year-old self was like... Yep. That's it. Yes. <laughs> and I don't think I even understood how, like, how feminist Just a Girl was mm -hmm. as a song, but I definitely understood it. I understood the humor. I understood how she 
felt like she could only be the things that men decided she could be. Sure. And, the, and like those lyrics, same thing, just really resonated with me because I was a total tomboy. And I really, and honestly, I really struggled to have girlfriends at school for a while. It wasn't so much that I wanted to hang out with boys. It was it was always like, no, I wish I was getting along with girls. They just don't want to hang out with me. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I respect that. I was also like a little tomboy when I forever. I still am. And I feel like I but when I got to high school, I found a way to fit in with the girls. But I almost feel like that then I feel like as I got older and went to college, I sort of came back around to this like version as I became more myself. I re-entered like this tomboy era. It really, it honestly never felt like it was by choice. I sure. was always like, but I want to have girlfriends yeah. for a play date. But it just so happened that the Michelle was more interested in coming around to my house to play video games than the girls were. Right. And it's like, and I think, I think in my classroom, because where I grew up, everyone's in the same classroom from like kindergarten till the end of high school that was my experience too really yeah crazy so so it felt very much like well all the groups are kind of already set mm -hmm. right all the cliques all the girls that like hang out with each other and are already friends like by the time you're 11 you're like no they like each other but I don't really fit in right you know anyway so but when you don't fit into the mold and that was the case for my parents and I mm. it just meant that I, I had to craft my own reality mm -hmm. for myself you know it meant that I spent a lot of time alone but it also means that very early on like I figured out a way to to entertain I was never bored and so I think by maybe by the time where I by the time I was a bit more articulate and should have been more sociable it was too late I was already a bit too much of a no, I always have a, an earphone mm -hmm. in my sleeve mm -hmm. during class. I'm always like listening to music. I'm not really trying to chat anymore. Sure. And so for the longest time, it always felt I have all these feelings and all these mm -hmm. thoughts and they're all within me. And it takes a lot of effort to release them on the outside. Yeah. And yeah. even more effort to like confront them to someone else's opinion. Yeah. If that makes sense. A hundred percent. I wanted to ask you next just about the role of music in your life when you were younger, because I really relate to what you were saying. For me, growing up, music became the thing that I would just turn to to access yeah. and experience the more intense emotions that yeah. I had that I wasn't really maybe feeling safe to express or to make other people privy to so mm. I just was curious what your relationship was like with music when you were growing up uh, music's always been like around because my on my dad's side so my dad is the Taiwanese one but in his family everyone's in show business except him wow <laughs> so like the he has two older sisters the eldest one was an actress singer like singer actress and she became like a superstar by the 80s oh. in Taiwan. So when I was little, it was very much like always, I always, I always looked up to her. She was like wearing fur coats and big sunglasses and she was just fabulous. Yeah. And she would just like, her favorite hobby was to have me and my cousin stay at hers and she would dress us up and take pictures of us and do our hair and like our makeup. And so for me, music was like a playground. I always saw it from the backstage. I didn't like the, it It was always like just this thing that and people in my family do. We mm -hmm. would go to the karaoke. That was always <laughs> like 
That was Christmas, you know. It was so much fun and it was very competitive. And then at some point, my dad started sending my mom and I mixtapes mm-hmm. that he would record himself at tai- in Taiwan when he, whenever we were apart for long stretches of time. And it was a way for me to manifest him and manifest mm-hmm. my Taiwanese family, basically to manifest like whoever was absent in my life. Mm-hmm. It, by playing music, it was like a way for me to have them around physically. In a weird way, you know, I would be at home alone a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. MTV raised me. Oh, like, yeah. MTV was like the third parent. <laughs> <laughs> so, and yeah, and I think I just became like completely obsessed, you know. I became obsessed with like, uh, first of all, MTV, obviously. Mm-hmm. I needed to see all the music videos. needed to know all of them. Duh. It also was like a weird, like weirdly, I guess, because in my household, in my family, we speak like four languages at all time. There's not one that dominates. That's epic. Okay, so English, French, Chinese, Ta- uh-huh. and German. Wow. There were four languages going around at all times. By the time I was like going to school, I didn't really have a dominant one. Yeah. I always felt a little bit like I'm trying to express myself, but I'm not finding the words or I'm not finding my way. And music was almost like a more expedient way to express myself. Interesting. It sounds like you were straddling a lot of different worlds and identities from between language and race and geography from a super young age. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny because I'm always trying to explain it to my parents. I'm like, you do like you can't even relate to my experience. Like neither of my parents understands each other as well as I understand them. Like, like my Taiwanese will always be more Taiwanese than my mom's right. Chinese. Do you know what I mean? And like her English, her German, whatever, will always be kind of like foreign and not exactly what she means. Sure. And same for my dad. Whenever he tries to speak in English, German or French, it's like a foreign language. So I'm the only one that understands what he truly means. It's, I'm like... That's a wild superpower. That's, that's like... That's a that's another degree of yeah translation and like just comprehension. Are they are they receptive to that? I mean, I think so. I think they are, but it's the same thing. It's like completely subconscious. Like none yes. of us ever spoke about it outwardly. It's all just like in the system, mm. in the system, our family's tissue. You know, it's just how we work. And but it's but I can definitely tell it's like there are times where there are quid, quid pro quos between my parents. And mm. if I'm there, it's like, oh, no, 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 but that's not what he meant. Like he was just, yeah. or that's not what she meant. She was just saying, you know, and I I only picked up like a couple of years ago, maybe during COVID because I spent more time with them. Yeah. Where I was like, oh, shit, that's what it is. Like I end up in the middle not because they argue about mm. me or whatever and put me in the middle, just because literally about the language. Like <laughs> that is that's super meta because I think that's something probably all kids can relate to of the uh-huh. parents are fighting about something and you have different relationships to both of them. So you're like, Mom, no, this is what he means. Well, he's not meaning it like that. But for you to actually have a <laughs> for the language situation to be at play and you actually just being like, no, those words are not exactly getting at the thing. Yes. Damn. I mean, kind of crazy that you had to reckon with the fact that words fail very yeah. young. Like they just aren't enough. Exactly. Words just weren't enough or something like, or something super silly. Sometimes it wasn't even my parents because they obviously know the situation. But let's say if I were to see my cousin in Taiwan or my cousins in 
Paris. Mm-hmm. Having to explain what my experience in Asia was so complicated. But then if I used pop culture references, everyone understood straight away. You know, everyone always knew exactly what I was talking mm. about because they were like this common denominator that was worldwide that I could use. Where I was like, just like in that music video, you yeah. know the one? Like, oh. Yeah, culture is like a point of reference to get at the thing. Thank God we had Mariah Carey. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> she was my she was my hero. <laughs> it all comes back to Mariah. I hope you get to tell her that one day. I'm like, this podcast is going to blow up and she's going to hear this. <laughs> Imagine. Mariah, I'm a lamb. I love you. Um, oh, man. Yeah. I guess music, like, it played a massive role without kind of me realizing that's what I was using it for. But I was definitely using it as a language. Like it it Mm. became this like currency for me. It was like, oh, I can't, I find I struggle to bond with with the girls in the playground, with the boys or whatever. But when it comes to music, I don't struggle. Like I know that if that person is like, I'm really into rap, I'm like, I got you. I'll make you a mixtape tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Music as the playground and as the mode of communication. I've heard you say that a lot of your work now is rooted in jazz and I was interested one like how you got intro to jazz and two how you got intro then how you got intro to electronic music okay the short answer for jazz is Mm -hmm. Mm hip-hop the long answer is it's easier for me to explain to people that what I like is rooted in jazz Mm -hmm. because I think most of my favorite music is is from Afro-American descent. Mm -hmm. And jazz is essentially like the modern American classical vernacular. So it's everything, whether it's pop music, dance music, disco, house, or whatever you want to call it, it all stems from that. It all stems from, yeah, African people ended up in America and creating to survive. Yep. And that's just I think that's always been the thing that I don't know why I just gravitated towards, I always liked. But then later on, when I was really into like hardcore and post-hardcore and stuff, I realized that the common denominator, like the thread that connected that music with all the other musics was like, yeah, like jazz drumming or like Mm -hmm. jazz structure, like Mm -hmm. time, like awkward time signatures, not awkward, but changes in time signatures in in keys and tonality, like all the tools in the jazz toolbox. But instead of being used on like beautiful vocals and keys, they were used on electric guitars, effects, paid pedals mm-hmm. and drums and rhythm sections. Yeah. But in the end, they were kind of, they were used to provoke the same sort of urgency that in my mind anyway, a, a bebop or hard bop would generate. So yeah. in in my mind, I just, every time I listen to techno, I just think of it as jazz. Mm. Every time I listen to house, I, I think of it as like disco, but made with, with at-home studio tools. Mm-hmm. So synthesizers, drum machines. Um, I see, I just see that as like the... Con- continuation of it's like building on top of that I'm just one of those total nerds you know it's like I need to understand like the origins of something to see the big picture and be like oh I know how to dig for it I know how to search for things I'll know how to find more of the things that I like Mm -hmm. if I work that way if I work in a reverse engineering way sure where you have to like understand the core so you can identify snippets of that elsewhere 
Exactly. So it's like a needing to understand how the music is made. So like the process, what instruments we use, but also the historical context. Mm -hmm. And then the more you know about the people, the more relatable the music is as well. So yeah, it's just a lot of different avenues of where I'm allowed to be an absolute dork. I think that's, I personally think that's amazing. And you sound like a, a true scholar in some ways. Um, when when did you first experience house or like electronic DJ music in your life? So I, I think I was, was going out to clubs and seeing DJs a lot. But at the time, it was still very like turntablism culture. Yeah. So it was more about like the performance of seeing DJs like cut, scratch, loop and pitch, like loads mm-hmm. of different bits and bobs of music together and collage them. And I, that's like early 2000s, I want to say like 2005, that was what I was into. Then, of course, because of French house music, like French touch was mm-hmm. so big. It was so mainstream. It was mm-hmm. everywhere. I think without realizing I was already, I was already into it. It was just on all of 97 and all of 98 yeah. that summer. It was the summer of One More Time Daft Punk. And, and Gala, all the hits. So anyway, that, so I think that was around, but I just didn't put two and two together. And then I want to say it's when, and then when I started doing, when I started promoting the Girls, Girls, Girls Nights with mm-hmm. the other girls and they were playing more like house and deconstructed club music based, like Fate to Mind, Night Slugs. That's when I was like, oh, they're actually playing songs that I like. Like it wasn't just like a genre of music that I hear in clubs, but can't really identify. It then became like, oh, I like what they play. Maybe there are some things that I like about this genre that I just don't know how to find it. I only know it like in my mind from where I grew up, it clubs were for older people, you know, like younger teenagers like myself. We just go to bars. Right. We never really wanted to pay to go into a club. We would go to bars and dance on like the top 40. Of course. It was that. So for me, dance music was dancing to like Beyonce and Sean Paul, obviously. (laughs) I didn't understand that going to a club was like trusting a DJ to curate the vibe. And that came way later. And so that came probably, yeah, in my like mid-20s when I started. I was working as a booking agent in Paris and... That was the first time that I really saw I would be on tour with DJs. I would see them do their thing. And then I'd be like, oh, okay. I'd be kind of exposed to the culture of it. Mm -hmm. And then I fell in love with one. And (laughs) he's really the one that was like, showed me all the classics. And then was also just pushing me to just try, you know, and try to see if I would, there were things that I liked within whatever he showed me. Yeah, And I feel like that gave me enough like entry points to find more of the stuff that I do. And then my last ex, he's the one that pushed me the most into production. So I was already a DJ by then, but he's like such a sick house and techno DJ. We're still really good friends. Yeah, love Um, that. (laughs) He's the one like that showed me. He's the one that really was like, look into this label, look into this, look into that. And then eventually I became like the one in the household that was digging the most mm-hmm. and and then by then it was like okay I think now you've now that you've really got I can read he was like he figured me out he figured me out before I figured myself out and so I started fiddling around on logic and then he he gave me his op1 so I could like try different workflows try working with machines and stuff and then eventually he I, that's when I was like oh, okay I think I 
do like it. And I think I want to do more. Wow. He gave me the bug. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm so curious about the process from just working in the music industry more broadly to being like, okay, I'm going to actually, did you have any sort of like intimidation about learning this new format of uh, musical expression? That's really 15 cool. 15 million. 15 million. I didn't <laughs> believe I could do it. I didn't believe that what I was making was producing. I was like, no, I'm just, uh, I'm just like uh, having fun with it. No, mm -hmm. you made a track. I was like, yeah. that didn't, I'm not a producer. Like the imposter syndrome is still very much alive. Even to this day, I don't release anything that I've been working on because I don't like it enough. And I'm, I don't like it enough, but also I'm just like, I'm just an idiot. Like I do <laughs> I seriously, I don't believe that what I make is good enough or... You don't, you don't believe that what you make is good enough? Yeah, never. I still don't believe it. I still don't think it's like worthy of a release. And I think it, it just, it's just, I think maybe it's because I spent so much time, like, I, I think I'm, I'm way more confident as like a music appreciator mm. than as a music maker. Mm -hmm. I trust my taste. And in finding music and like searching for it and yeah. all that stuff, like I trust that muscle a lot more than I trust my music making muscle. And I think it, it really just comes from, first of all, lack of practice. Second mm -hmm. of all, just the fact that so much of it is trial and error. Right. So much of it is of like figuring out your own workflow process, what tools you want to use, what like sounds you want to make, like what it's endless. It's the quest is endless and I think I'm still at the point where I still feel so like baby yeah. in the process. Sure. I don't feel like I have much to offer. I don't feel like I have as much to offer than when it comes to, I don't know, DJing or making radio shows or curating. Like, Yeah. So the stuff you're working on producing is different than like the stuff that you're performing when you're DJing a, a show. You're working on your own like a, original stuff that's not in the world yeah. yet. Got yeah. it. Okay. And one ex showed you the ropes with the DJing and another ex showed you the ropes with production. Exactly. Dang. The, fir the first ex also told me loads about production. He told me more about like, the he gave me the producer's mindset. Sure. So the first boyfriend encouraged me to go DJ. We would analyze music together. Mm. And I think he's the one that was starting to, he was doing inception on me. He was like, okay, how would you make this track differently? And just by asking that question, it started to give me that mindset that where you're like, oh, actually, I don't have to take a track at face value. I can imagine it mm. sounding, maybe I only like the melody. Maybe I don't love the singer. Maybe I wish Beyonce was singing this. Or mm -hmm. maybe I wish that maybe if the beat wasn't like a heavy trap beat, but it was like a light disco beat, I would prefer this. He started to make me, just by asking questions, he get, started giving me the this idea that you could reimagine the music that you love. Yeah. And I call this having producer ears where you're mm -hmm. like, you can never switch it off again. Once that genie's out of the bottle, there's no going back in. So now every time I listen to new music, I can't not analyze it that way. I can't not think like, damn, you know, I wish, I wish Break My Soul by Beyonce was more bare. I wish there was a dub version. And like, no, I wish it wasn't as written. 
as it is, because then it would be more of a club track. Just being able to like take apart the music. Yeah. Try and think of it as just like this malleable thing that it's almost like interior decoration or something where you're like, wait, but what if I moved this part here instead? And that's actually, and you start imagining things differently. Yeah, that's really cool because I also feel like extreme music appreciator, just it, getting into songwriting for the first time. I listen deep and pick up on the specificities of what I like, but I think that there's the next step to that is again picking up on the stuff that you don't like for some reason that's like less intuitive to be like to like you're saying that you can imagine it to be a little bit different is such like a different level unlocked oh totally and it's so funny because now I can't remember what it was like like I used to listen to so much music and just take it for what it was like yeah and never was I thinking well I could make a different version and so it It made enjoying music a lot more simple, (laughs) but it also made it a lot less enriching because once you unlock the, oh, but how would I make it differently? Then you start producing, you start also listening for elements. You're like, how you're starting to ask questions, not just like, how would I make it differently? But like, how did they make that? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, that was, that, that's what made me enjoy production because I was like I can play that game forever a hundred percent do you know what I mean I can play that game play a song and be like yeah that's the rim shot of the 707 Mm -hmm. yeah that's I want to say this bass line is not sampled it's played on a synth like you just yeah and I feel like it must just be a whole different level it feels like a new language to learn do you remember when you started being able to identify oh yeah this is this is the whatever type of drum or this is like once you start feeling empowered and like a part of that conversation based on your knowledge that must have been a whole nother level of it feeling accessible and feeling at your disposal to curate your taste totally I was I still am but I was hugely obsessed with the dream 10 years ago yeah 10 15 years ago and I his role in pop music and R&B and hip hop is his influence is so massive and yet he's so underrated like Mm. people talk of Missy Timberland Pharrell as Mm -hmm. legends and Dre and all that stuff no one talks of the dream like that even though he's here he's literally at the at Beyonce's table collecting all those Grammys because he's been making those hits like he made the Bieber hit but we don't like for some reason he doesn't get his flowers anyway so I had like a huge moment of being obsessed with him and Mm -hmm. he was obsessed with Prince so that Mm -hmm. made me obsessed with Prince God, you know, it's just this grab and pull, but it's really cool because back to what we were saying earlier, you're never bored. Like Mm -hmm. just looking at music that already exists, that's already recorded, you have so much material to study, to find, to to uncover, to learn from. And And yet it's still moving, like it's still alive. Yeah. The part that fascinates me the most is the psychoacoustics part. You know, it's the part where we claim ownership over a song because of how we experience it right yeah so like so a couple will make like the first dance that will be their song and yeah. whoever was at their wedding will always think of them as that was their first song yeah and 
whoever your friend was in like fifth grade that showed you that one CD, you're forever going to associate that person to the yeah. music and, and like whatever you would listen to as a teenager when you're feeling so uncomfortable mm -hmm. and lonely and mm -hmm. you don't have anything to express yourself. This music does the job for you. That will forever resonate with you, but it can take, but then it can take new meaning if you listen mm -hmm. back to it in your adult life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the part that fascinates me the most is that like music connects us to time and space. Yeah. Right. It's crazy because obviously, yeah, music is just, it's magic in that way. And thinking about like when we you listen to a song that's already you already associate with something when you listen to it mm -hmm. in a new context it like recontextualizes it and yeah. draws new associations with it first i'm just totally. drawing that to the parallel of djing where it's like you're taking things that oftentimes people already have pre-existing psycho associations with mm -hmm. plopping it into a new soundscape or a new setting in a new physical space and it's like you can totally transform the hue with which that exists within someone totally Totally. It becomes this thing. I think that's also why I love DJing so much is because music then becomes like your, it becomes the clay that you'll use to make the pottery. But you can use it any which way you want. Like mm -hmm. you can shape it any way you want, but it already has its own texture, right? It already mm -hmm. has, it comes with its own baggage, with its own like vernacular mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But you, and you just play Legos with it. You just build yeah, that's how you want to build. Yeah, that's an incredible. Do you have, when you talk about the psychoacoustic situation, do you have a specific like song top of mind where you were reminded of some crazy association, association with? For example, I think I have the perfect example for me would be actually Beyonce Break My Soul. Mm. First time I heard it was like, like everyone when it dropped mm -hmm. on my laptop or on my phone. And I went straight to bitching. I was just mm -hmm. like, ah, don't tell me. It's such a reach. Mm -hmm. She's like releasing this in the middle of gay pride. It's such a reach knowing that she's literally been like shoving down her heteronormative <laughs> relationship down our throats as marketing for 20 years. Like now she comes around and she's gay. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, but then, and then I finally heard it in a club environment at a party and I saw everyone lose their shit and mm. sing along and it made me love it instantly it made me change my mind instantly about it I was like I was really of like, it's mid mm -hmm. that snare like why do you compress it that way and then when I finally heard it out and saw people's reaction it made me love it as much as they loved it which and is now a, I can't yeah. go. Now I'm like, I love this song. Like, love to play it. She's also a, a beautiful openness because people love to just be obsessed with hating stuff. And I cherish a willingness to change one's mind about these kind of things, you know? Oh, I think it's actually my, my favorite <laughs> feeling is having one of those conversations mm -hmm. or being in one of those situations where I'm like, I used to absolutely hate this song, but I actually love it in this context. Mm -hmm. Or even actually with Jason the other night, mm -hmm. they, I think they mentioned it in the pod where we, I ended up playing that LCD sound system song, All My Friends. Oh, yeah. And like the three of us, Chris, Jason and I all looked at each other. We were like, neither of us actually likes LCD sound system. Us, and, yeah. like, and right now at this party, like that just felt like fitting. And it worked. Right. And I think that just speaks to when you were saying how you're much more comfortable with the curatorial 
aspect of your job and being sort of, um, yeah, gathering the best pieces for the best times. And that obviously starts with having a robust knowledge of things to pull from. I just, that makes me wonder when you're DJing a set or in a certain space, how much of it is pre-planned versus how much of it is like, I need to play LCD sound system in this moment for some unexplainable reason. I just know it's going to slap. You know what? I used to plan a lot more, mm-hmm. I want to say. I used to plan literally almost exactly every minute and then would maybe have a few like segues if I saw that like by the first hour people prefer this more disco-y stuff then I would have a sort of like a bridge where I'm like oh I can go into the more dis- disco-y stuff right now mm-hmm. I could ha- have like a disco exit mm-hmm. or a techno exit or a house exit or like have tension releases yes. in my toolbox yes and then I have tension builders. And mm-hmm. I think that's, if I were to generalize, that's all you need. You need the tracks that you know are going to bring, are going to build and a certain mood and are going to maybe apply a bit of pressure mm-hmm. so that eventually, 15 minutes later, you can release that pressure mm-hmm. and make people feel good mm-hmm. with joy or melancholia mm. or slow down or speed up, like whatever it is. It can be many things, but I think now I'm a lot more, I've done a lot of back-to-backs over the last year. And it's made me realize that I actually prefer not planning so much because over planning means that you, you don't leave much room for the crowd to converse with you. You're very much like in control. Yeah. And a back-to-back is that when you DJ a a few DJs, like, go back yeah exactly it's when you dj with another dj Mm. and instead of you playing like one on the one and on the two and on the one on the two you'll do maybe one and then the other person will do another one or you'll do two and then the other person will do two so that's really like you have to go off instinct more of what what is happening between you two two djs and the crowd real time totally it's like a yeah it's like a three-way conversation and when things really gel, you can really feel it. Like it's mm. magical. When mm-hmm. you're like, yo, we could play anything, go any direction. This is, I feel so comfortable. Like it's, yeah, it's really cool. It feels like a telepathic bond almost. Yeah, a telepathic bond between two DJs. But what are your like crowd reading tricks? Is it just a vibe? Is it literally just a vibe where you look out and you're like, these people are eating this up? Yes and no. A lot of the times I'm not really sure if I'm doing an okay job. To be like, to be completely honest, I'm always like pretty surprised. But I like, basically, it's more managing your own expectations. Mm -hmm. I think it's more that than it is anything else. So if I'm going to DJ an event in a store, I don't really expect people to like dance, dance. I call it like the polite shimmy or the polite shrug. And I'm, and I know that if you go in expecting people to break a sweat and lose their shit, that is not, that's probably not the most conducive environment. And then same thing, like club nights, if my DJ set starts at like 4am, I'm not expecting to be with the most high energy crowd at this point, not trying to empty it out either. You're like, you just from experience, you learn to preemptively expect a certain scenario to unfold 
So I think that's what that's why we care so much about the size of the venue. Like how many people are going to be there? Is it low ceiling? Is it a really mm-hmm. big hall? Or is it really sweat? What are the the markers that are going to give you indications on what vibe is, mm-hmm. what the vibe is going to be like? Yeah, and it really does feel like because in some ways I view you or view DJs as the vibe setter. Like you determine the vibe. You set the vibe. But I guess... It is ultimately coming back to what you were saying, where you want to know the background, you want to know the context, you want to be up to date and educated on the situation you're entering into so you can meet it with the appropriate vibe. Yeah, Yeah. I think it's that. And I think there's also like just serving, like serving Mm -hmm. the party, like keeping in mind that it's not you're not just there to deliver a message. It's not just about you. It's it's the party has its own life. Like the crowd, the crowd will never be the same one. Right. You know, the whatever alchemy happens in that space at that time can never be recreated. So you have to honor that too. Right. So yeah. you, you come into you have to come into the club with at least a bit of space for surprise and just in general for connection I think maybe that there's been times where I overplan my sets because of stress and stuff sure. I have an example my boiler room I completely overplanned my boiler room and now I when I watch back I'm like mm. like I can tell that like I'm okay my set is fine but I'm not connecting I'm like delivering I'm like I'm trying to remember if I saw your boiler room I saw the one that you did outside that's so sexual yeah that's the one oh okay I personally was obsessed with that so okay okay. don't yeah (laughs) that was the thing that I watched that I was like yeah I'm going to public records so don't worry no but you know like I I I like it but sure I have this thing where you can sort of tell from your own face you're like I'm not present as much yeah, I'm just like trying to find eye contact or mm-hmm. something. I'm trying to connect, but it's not really, it's not really latching. And that's how it's that's how it felt that time. But then other times, like other times, I overplan and the tracks do. And I'm just not prepared for the reaction. Oh yeah, I feel like what you were saying about this is such a weird reference, but. I remember I was listening to an interview with Amy Poehler once, the actress, and she was talking about how the pandemic didn't just remind us that we didn't have control, but it reminded us that control is an illusion to begin with. And so I feel like that's what your anecdote about how much to prepare, how much to allow for surprise, like things not going the way you think. I feel like that's the stuff of life of just having to be able to be sort of like, even if you are the most prepared, sometimes it might not hit. Or even if you're just absolutely winging it, you have no idea. All you can do is control what you put out there and respond to how it's received. Totally. Like, and I think like I have, I'm a bit of a control freak, obviously. Me too. But I'm trying to, you know, and I'm, I am trying to find more flexibility in my life. And definitely, but definitely with DJ sets, I find it almost easy. Like, you know what? The only time where I have to have everything prepared is when I play hip hop and R&B. So like I started off as a hip hop and R&B DJ. And because the songs are really short, like you mix them in really quickly. So you sort of need, first of all, you need to know your tracks off by heart, but you, but it's a bit more it's almost closer to turntablism and having sure. routines because you mix so quickly that you don't really have time to like search for a song and think of a song. Like you just really have to keep it 
rolling. Right. I think so. I think that's why I, by default, tend to plan a lot. Yeah. But now with house and techno, I plan a lot less. Like with house, I ha- I'm like, it's okay. I have enough house in my head for two hours. It should be fine. <laughs> but it's for like hip hop and R and B, and now even more so because the tracks are even shorter than they were before. Like in the 2000s, like the tracks were at least four minutes long. Now yeah. it's two. So. You really have to like mix in super quickly or make loops or you have to have mini routines at the ready. Right. Before you get to the place because the crowd, like the crowd that dances to hip hop R&B are relentless Mm. and they won't let you slip up. Like, (laughs) you know, if you like, if you miss a beat, if if there's a dud, you lost them. Whatever you've built for half an hour. It just takes one track to ruin. Oh my God, that's g- giving me anxiety. Thank you. Yeah, it's really, it's, re- it's really intense. It's really intense. So I try and do, I try and do a lot less of those. I try, basically, I told myself, I was like, just know your crowd. If I'm, if, when I play hip hop or NB, I play two millennials. Like mm-hmm. I, as much as I love the Gen Z and their energy and what they're, what they're into, mm-hmm. I can't deliver the same way a Gen Z would deliver to themselves. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So I'm just like, I just, it's just not my level. I don't have the expertise to do it. Yeah, of course I'll play Ice Spice because I love her. And <laughs> I'm a baddie. I get what I want. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I will necessarily follow it up with Ariana Grande. Of Tim course. Swift, and all, I don't know the Lizzo songs. <laughs> Frankly, me neither. And that's fine. And I feel like knowing your lane and knowing... It's also just like your taste too. It's honoring what you know and what you love and trusting that there's an audience to receive that and trusting you know how to serve them. It's funny. I keep just come keep thinking about trust as we're talking about this. Like you have got to trust the crowd and then the amount of space that you leave in your set for kind of on off the cuff in the mm-hmm. moment decisions is so much self-trust too and just knowing that you you're going to be able to react accordingly. Yeah, yeah. So that's why like a lot of the work that DJs do is invisible because it doesn't really, it doesn't happen in the public eye. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the work we comes from just processing the music, like listening to it in a way that is different to a regular music consumer. We will like the active listening happens, you know, multiple times. You're listening a first time just to to analyze the song structure then you're analyzing like okay melodically what key do I mix it do I mix it in key or do I mix it in beat match Mm -hmm. there's multiple ways to do it what's the energy of the song like you're just you're thinking of it already as like the way a chef would see an apple or a tomato like he's not thinking to eat the tomato right now he's thinking what can I make with this what's the composition of a tomato that's really tasty is it, it's not the seeds is it the acidity or is it the sweetness is it the juiciness is it those flesh so it's the same you have the same brain on when mm-hmm. you're listening and processing to music but the thing is you just have to process so much music every week mm-hmm. before a DJ set that yeah and do you try not to replicate or do you have go-tos that you, like your standard sort of, or signature samples you like to use? I try not to replicate too much, but I definitely have like crutches. Like yeah. I'd, I call them crutches because they're like 15 minute to 20 minute blocks mm-hmm. where I know exactly what the effect will be. Cool. So like if I play these four to six songs together Mm -hmm. 
by the end of that, I'll be on the other side of, I don't know, 120 BPM or something. Sure. Got um, it. Yeah. And like things like that. Okay. Well, I just was curious about your like pre, do you get nervous pre-performing? Yes. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> Every time. What are your like pre-show rituals? If you have any. It's mostly like, it's mostly alone time. Like it mm -hmm. sounds really ridiculous because obviously when you're DJing, all your friends want to hang out with you and you're like, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's like, you're gonna, you can hang out with me like the day before, the day after, or like at the party. Right. But not like the lead up is prep, you know? So it's going to be like, I'm going to take probably an hour just to go through music. Mm -hmm. Uh, do my makeup, mm -hmm. get dressed. And I like to arrive kind of with my own energy a little bit. Yeah. So that you don't step into the club and are completely overwhelmed with what's going on in there, if you know what I mean. Right. So I need my little hour of bubble, my little prep, um, so that when I arrive, I can feel a bit fresh. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I'm dying to know what your, like, astrological sign is. Oh, God, Virgo. Oh, uh, yeah. I feel like it's so obvious once you say it, but yeah, I'm a Virgo. Oh, my gosh. Do you know your moon and rising? Uh, Yeah, my moon is in Taurus. My rising is Sagittarius. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I'm a Taurus. Um, Earth signs, hello. I know, rise with a Capricorn moon, which is scary, and um, a Scorpio rising, which I think is fun. Oh, yeah. That's kind of similar. We're both Earth, uh, moon, and sun, yeah, and we're then... I don't know what Sag is. Is that air? Uh, no idea. I think so. But for sure, for sure, we are two very grounded gals. Oh, yeah, 100%. I'm like, I, I could feel that. Also, I get the like just needing to just truly get the bearing sort of like <laughs> center in the space and, and take it all in. I think it's really like it's still the legacy of my loner ways, you know, where mm -hmm. I'm like, a lot of it happens in my head before it happens outside, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of it, a lot of the prep happens within me. Yeah. And then, and, and like when I'm ready, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I can go to the club now. Do you Gosh, know what I mean? I, I, I really relate to that. Sometimes I have to, I feel like, just tell myself it's like actually not a big deal. And I just have to just calm myself down and like know about everything that's going on around me. And I feel like sometimes I just have to have a mindset shift. of It's actually not that deep. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk in there. <laughs> it, strong relate. I think the first now that I'm used to it, fashion events don't scare me like that anymore. But the very first few I did for sure was I, I was intimidated. I was like, yo, I'm in this crazy setting. Like it's usually in a monument or in like some lavish That's so cool. decorum. And there's probably a few celebs and there's like, you know, free food, free champagne. Mm -hmm. Everything is so already so much fun you're like whoa where do I fit in like I think you know for a lot from a good five years I was like a deep imposter syndrome oh I don't belong here like I'm I'm just a I'm a tourist here mm. for tonight right. like for tonight I get the privilege of like seeing what happens over here but otherwise that's not my world and right. and then slowly you know by by attending more events and meeting more people and stuff then I was like I became more familiar with the people um 
that put on the events, but also go to them and party and da da da. And so yeah. now it feels a lot more familiar. Like now it feels like DJing a friend's birthday or something, you know? Sure. How did you first get um, into the fashion world? That's such a cool intersection. I feel like you get to curate the the energy at so many different types of spaces. I mean, uh, yeah, the the fashion was a really just by kind of by default because I lived in Paris right. and there are just more events than there are club nights. Yeah. You know what? It, it's one of those weird ones. It's like you have you for the first couple of years, you have like a one off here and there. Mm-hmm. Nike would call you up for a little daytime thing or da 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 here and there. And then I think I DJed a, a fashion and photography festival in the south of France Oof. in like 2016. Um, but it was still really kind of like low key and up and coming. It's not like a big festival. And it was very like industry specific. But I I remember that was that was the kind of the turning point where I smashed that set and and I only know I smashed it because it was really sweaty, but also because when I eventually got back to Paris, I would just go about my day to running my errands or whatever. And once in a blue moon, there'd be like someone who'd be like, uh, are you the girl that was DJing at this festival? I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God, that was so sick. Da, da, oh da, my da, da. God. And I could tell, I could sort of feel the shift. Like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, there's a, a, that, that was a turning point. Mm-hmm. Like now the industry is sort of thinking of me for those events now. Yeah. Do you feel like you've attained low grade celebrity or some sort of like celebrity? Not celebrity, but I definitely feel like within certain industries, I am familiar. Sure. Like, I I know my way and I know enough people that I, that I, it never feels like I'm a tourist anymore. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I have that, I have that in fashion. I have that uh, in music for sure. And I have that, I think, a little bit in food because by proxy, my best friend is in food. And so I end up meeting loads of chefs and yeah. da, da, da. So there's this whole other network of places and people to go visit yeah. and to experience. And, and that's like another in. And I feel like that's very similar with DJs where it's like, when you go play in Madrid or whatever, you never expect to see your Madrid DJ friends there because it's the weekend. They'll be touring somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? But when, but maybe you'll expect running into them in like Belgium or, you know, New York. Yeah. Do you feel like being a DJ has altered your relationship to place? Yes, massively. <laughs> How so? Massively. Um, massively because I think now what my day-to-day boils down to like what my home like I don't need a lot to feel at home I think that's what it's changed um (laughs) it's more about like yeah it takes a lot less for me to feel at home somewhere like I feel like I could pretty much live anywhere as long as I have like a place to exercise uh you know favorite restaurant places to go dancing record shops uh books like i as long as I have a certain few things I identified and easy access to, I feel at home. That's cool. I, I have like two more questions and then we'll mm-hmm. hop off. But I didn't know that you produced original stuff. I'm just like dying to hear like what's it what is it like? How is it different than the stuff you DJ slash you need to release it? So when? <laughs> um, okay, so I have one track out 
there in the world, just the one. It's called Reach. It's basically, I call it, I describe it as horny house. Obsessed. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think so, I, you know, that's pretty much what I play. Mm -hmm. Like, and then in my boiler room, there is a track that's one of the last ones I finished. That's also an original, but you know, it's never come out. So it's just in my boiler room. And, but yeah, I think that's just like, that's what I love about dance music is the grown and sexy element to it. It's like, I love being playful, cheeky, sassy. Mm -hmm. I love tracks that are super bouncy, but I also love tracks that are like super deep. So it's kind of trying to find the balance between like the deepness of emotion and that's more inward looking. And then the kind of more like front end sassy yeah. outward expressing of like, you know, um, a wink. You know, exactly. Yeah. Of flirtation. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because your boiler room set was the first thing I saw of yours. I was like, damn, this is this is hot. But obviously sex and music, I feel like, are two of the things that are kind of beyond words and indescribable. And when you're like talking about like the tension and release of it all, I was wondering if if you connect those two in a more, no pun intended, explicit way. <laughs> oh, totally. Like for me, it's really direct. Yeah. For me, it's really direct because, and, and I think, you know, it's funny because you were asking me earlier, like how I was first exposed to dance music or electronic music and clubbing and stuff. And I think because in my mind, uh, electronic music and clubbing was like something reserved for adults, for like grown-ups. In my mind, it's also like this free space experiment yeah. sexually and therefore to express like sexuality in different ways and not just in like a very lyrical way or like a, to me, like percussions mm. in a in a house or in a techno track. I find that to be really, really sexy. Yeah. But I can't. I, I can't just say like percussion tracks are sexy. Like sure. that would be that would be reductive, you know? It's like it's because what you project onto it or like how you contextualize it and stuff. But yeah, things like that. It's more like that what made me fall in love with electronic mm -hmm. music was like the tongue in cheek. It was like the 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 audacity. And I think also <laughs> because I because I come from hip-hop and R&B where everything is very much like vocal based and lyric based I for me there's nothing more direct than hearing a human voice in a track you can build a vibe and you can still connect and converse with the crowd with instrumentals but as soon as there's a vocal it's so direct you know it's like yeah you save that like milli 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 second of of connection and and I and I think that's why I like I'm still so drawn to it. Yeah, it's cool to think of. Well, when you were saying clubs being reserved to, for adults, that yeah, it's like forbidden. It's like erotic, but also it's like a cool space where sexuality can exist in a more like you're saying playful, suggestive way with other people. And when I hear you saying, um, like you b build a soundscape or percussion as being sexy, I feel like that's so much more suggestive or s subtle, or it makes you just sort of raise an eyebrow versus like a voice that will say words to you that we already mm -hmm. know are sexual. So I think that that's like, again, such a, a cool thing about also the interplay between vocal and non-vocal aspects of music. 
yeah, yeah. I think there's, it's just like, it's just a, there's just so much you can do, you know, like when you're given the time. I think what's cool when you're DJing and DJ sets is that you're essentially given, it's, you're essentially given extra time to express what you want to express mm-hmm. and, and you can, you can go up, down, da, 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 like there's more and that you have more, you literally you're allowed to build up tension and release over time rather than create tension and release over a song. Mm. You know, when you're when you're songwriting, you're trying to create tension and release as well. But right. like you're creating tension with a with a verse and release with a chorus that's catchy. So you just have a lot less tools in the toolbox, right. you know, to achieve those effects. But when you're playing two to three to four to six hours, mm-hmm. you ha- you can explore so many different things and you have so much more time to build to to take people on a journey yeah there there is something so profound about that I feel like now especially like you're saying with songs getting shorter even like Mm -hmm. the agreement that a DJ and a crowd enters into there are so much fewer experiences like that now where people are committing to be along for a ride that's not you know a four minute verse chorus verse verse chorus that they know what's going to happen yeah 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 and 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 i think it's i think it's really i i always see it as like there's a direct correlation i think with like television you know how we've how now we go back to watching like we binge an entire series right Mm -hmm. instead of watching a two-hour movie we are ready to commit to like six or seven hours Mm -hmm. right yeah, but, I, but like you said, it's like that commitment is get those situations or these environments where you agree to that commitment are getting fewer and fewer and far between. Yeah. You know, for everything else, we expect convenience and immediacy. Yeah. Right. For like our communication, for our work, for yeah. our food, for yeah. our commute. Like we ex- we have entered the age of like hyper convenience and yeah instantaneous everything and mostly instantaneous access and when you go into a rave or a club or you're sort of like surrendering yeah you're surrendering to time like you're like okay I am now giving up fighting you and saving you Mm -hmm. saving the minutes I'm here to spend them yeah and it, the television analogy is really diff- is interesting and I was just thinking how it's similar and it's similar to a concert but the difference is the unpredictability where it's like you're mm-hmm. watching a show you know what you're signing up for you're going to a concert you know probably the songs that you could hear I think that that's another really kind of magical and ephemeral part of DJing that is super unique is like you don't really know what you're opting in for you maybe know like the general vibe that this person has set in the past you know um but you don't know exactly what's in store which is people are not as inclined to make those kind of risks it's true it's true I think there's like there's a new level of like entitlement of needing to know before committing yeah you know and I think that applies to everything not just music but because you know dating apps but um (laughs) yeah 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 but in general that's the thing that's still very much alive with DJing is that you you do have this like tacit agreement that when you are DJing at a club 
it's not explicit, but you you have this 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 trust. Mm-hmm. You build this trust. This audience has like bought tickets because they trust you, and vice versa. Your duty is to also like deliver a good party to the crowd. You know? <laughs> it's not it's not just what the trust isn't just one sided. The right. It's like a it's it's like a silent contract. Yeah, signed between the crowd and the DJ, and I think that's. I think that's, like you said, it's getting like rarer and rarer, but when it happens, it's still magical, you know, like the, I, I think when you, when you do stay open like this and trust, you're allowing yourself to be exposed to things that you could, would never be exposed to otherwise, you know? Yeah. It's like a, I think that's why I love the dance floor so much because it's kind of like this great equalizer where every everyone's the same level you're part of that you all have a role everyone has a role to play you know not just the dj not just the bar staff not just the the merch girl you like everyone has a role a a role to play yeah and they all contribute to this bigger thing that's not really that you can't really capture Mm -mm. you know I actually find it to be like quite vulnerable, the dance floor. I think it's like the fact that everyone is opting in is the thing that makes it feel safe. Where everyone is opting into being kind of exposed. And and to me, it always feels vulnerable. We were kind of talking about this in the beginning, but it feels vulnerable to be expressive, like in front of others, to like, mm-hmm. you know, to like show that you're moved or show that you're taken by something. It's it's vulnerable to allow other people to like bear witness to that. And I think that that's one of the most freeing parts. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I think it's freeing. And it also, it's it's funny because we're so shy about it, but then it's also the best way to connect. Yeah. Right? Like, um, you know, there's research from like ages ago that proves that people when they sing together, strangers mm. that have never met before will bond four times faster than if they were chatting or even dancing for that matter. But singing together will just let, like by the end of a karaoke sesh, this is your best friend. You know what I mean? Like your family, you know each other intimately. <laughs> your family must be tight. You got after all this karaoke you did growing up. <laughs> a little too tight. A little too tight. Just kidding. You're just like kidding. we could have gone with with a two less karaoke sessions go for the holidays. Uh, but you you know it's funny because it is you're really right. Like you really nailed it. That there is something to say about like how we choose to spend our time because. Like in some weird way, when we go out, when we choose to stay up all night and not mm-hmm. sleep, it's like it, it's it, we're in this very contradictory like crossroads where simultaneously living and hyper aware of our own death because we're f- fighting it. Yeah. Like, you know, like it's time that's it's time that like we're not that is not productive. We're choosing to spend like literally knowing that every minute that goes by every song that goes by we're closer to dying Mm. but it's also every minute that goes by is our great release from that fear so it's like this dual thing right it's the it's the hyper presence like the hyper presence of it of like the the awareness that this moment is fleeting which is both the best and worst part like Mm -hmm. yeah it's reminding me, what's up with your Insta bio? Haven't haven't slept since 1999? Uh, because that was the first time I was allowed out at night. It was for the millennium. It was for December 31st, 1999. 
I was allowed out with my best friend to go into town for the millennium mm. and you know our, like our moms met up for weeks before that they were like scheming deciding what time is the best time to pick us up <laughs> where to meet up you know we all thought it was going to be the end of the world whatever I just remember so vividly going out that night getting ready the anticipation all of it and then just from then on it was like well now I want to do this every Friday like obviously yeah there's something that, about the night there is something about the night yeah yeah and so I feel and I and like basically what happened was like I think maybe maybe seven or eight years ago something or maybe 10 years ago something like that I went to DJ somewhere in Germany in I went to DJ in Berlin and I hadn't slept for like two three days because I went from like a gig to another gig to another gig mm -hmm. and then I was at the airport and the flight was delayed by like four hours. And you know when you're like, wow, those are the four hours that I feel that I, f I feel so tired. I yeah. feel like I have, I, it's almost like I have compounded all the tiredness <laughs> in my life to, uh, to arrive in this moment yeah. of ultimate tired. Yeah. And I, and I just texted that to my ex-boyfriend. I was like, I feel like I haven't slept since 1999. That's and so funny. <laughs> it just stuck around, you know, it just stuck around where I was like, that is my brand, actually. That is absolutely my brand. I will always sacrifice sleep. And maybe now it's changing because I'm a bit older. It used to be that, like, I wanted to grab any opportunity. And if it meant sacrificing sleep, like, that was yeah. never a problem, you know? Oh, uh, that's that's amazing. I'm such an insomniac. I have been ever since I was little. And so I feel like, for me, sleep is this high-stakes thing where it's yeah. so beyond my control. It's like the th talk about being a control freak. It's the one thing where, like, I cannot get a grip on my sleep, really. And so it has become this, like, scarce thing in my brain that, like, I yeah. need to get good sleep because it's kind of rare and do everything in my power to do so. But actually, just kind of being like, you know what? not gonna sleep anyway so might as well like go the fuck out has kind of been a, a liberating a liberating shift for me of the similar thing of just like releasing I just surrendered to this if I'm gonna be awake I'm gonna enjoy myself hell yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. I mean dude like the amount of nights I spent as a teenager doing nothing just looking at the, staring at the ceiling listening to a CD yeah. like out of sheer boredom, but you know what's you know what's changed my sleeping habits? Please tell me. Weed gummies? Oh, I mean Louise. You're just getting on to this? <laughs> I only get it when I go back to New York. I only get them when I go back to New York, but uh that's been a game changer where I'm yeah. like, if I need to know that I if I need a guaranteed ten hours yeah. after like a festival or whatever, the weed gummy will be there for me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's me mm, almost every night but um i want i have one last question i'm asking everyone which is just that in an alternate life where you're not a dj what other persona are you embodying i think i always wanted to be a teacher i'm not really sure what i would teach but i just i love trans like transmission and i'm just so nerdy that mm -hmm. i just i think i would really love indulging in like that aspect um, and being able to share that with like younger, younger people and, you know, being stimulated by like literally like the next generation. I yeah. find it so interesting. The other alternative would probably be the hospitality industry. It yeah. would probably be to have like a restaurant. Yeah. 
and and to host like my friends at my restaurant. Well, uh, the, the, it would be it would be soup and dumplings for sure. <laughs> the through line is the is the vibe curation for all of this and the exchange type situation. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah, that's the thing that like get really makes me feel alive I think me too I also have a plan for my 50s to be a professor of like literature so see you at some, amazing see you at some college we can co-teach I'll, a class <laughs> I was gonna say I'll probably come to your lesson I'll probably come to your class okay I mean perfect and I'll come to yours in the spirit of exchange <laughs> uh this was so lovely thank you so much for taking all this time with me Oh, no, of course. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Like, it means a lot. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I'm really honored. Yeah, of course. Um, Well, I'm back and to DJ end of April, first week of May. So if you wanted to come, do let me know. I would would love to invite you. That's so sweet. And hang out. That is my birthday weekend, so I might have to come. My Taurus birthday weekend. (laughs) If that's not destiny, then I don't know. Yay. Thank you, Luis. Talk to you soon. See ya. Bye. Personal Project is hosted and produced by me, Avery Friedman. Sophia Terenzio produced this podcast and helped make the jingle alongside Shant Amarkanian. And the cover art is by Aaron Sofreno. Thanks for listening.